0: Listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Verse 1: King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar then, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now some of you as we just read that some of you might be thinking Melden I thought you said that Belshazzar was a grandson now the bible here is saying that it was that he's Nebuchadnezzar's son. So so what's going on here what are you talking about but we must understand that that in the word of God that the word father is often a generic term that is used. It's used for bloodline, but for uh, to refer to ancestors or various descendants. Even um, King David is referred to as Christ's father, as Jesus' father uh, through the bloodline. We know there's a lot of other bloodline that went on from that time of David to Jesus. And so so this is more of a generic term, just, just so you understand that as we're going through God's word, just so you're not confused. And then also. So if you remember from Daniel chapter 1 when we are going through that, when King Nebuchadnezzar the grandfather of King Belshazzar, went to Jerusalem and took captive Daniel and other um, Hebrew captives. He also took items from the temple of Jerusalem. It was his way of saying, our God, our power, our victory over your God, over your availability for any sort of power or, or control or authority in any way. And so, They take these vessels, they take these sacred items, and this was a big deal. This was his way of saying, our God is greater than your God. They took these precious things from the house of God, and they literally, in doing this, they made a mockery of it. And they bring them to this drunken party that was more than just a drunken party. And as we see here in this passage and understand scripture, this was more of an orgy than it even was that of just a drunken celebration kind of party. This was a way that, that the king and his people were spitting in the face of God. For the Jewish mind, the Jewish person reading this, they could not imagine a more blasphemous activity than what King Belshazzar was doing. What pride, what arrogance, no respect for God, not afraid of the armies that that are besieging just outside his city that are just waiting for him, and no respect for God. So let's keep going in verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, you have to understand, this wasn't just some nice kind of royal state dinner. This was a party filled with all kinds of sin, wickedness, and immorality that was taking place. You see, in verse 1, when it says that the king drank wine in front of the thousand, that was a big deal. Because ancient kings would abstain when they would throw a party, they would abstain from drinking alcohol to, order, to, to maintain a certain order and authority and self-control over the people. And here we see Belshazzar, he is getting hammered. He is just indulging and allowing his wives and his comp- concubines to I- engage in this as well. Something along like this that usually the wives or the concubines were not a part of this sort of activity, especially when it came to drinking and, and partying in this way and so here the enemies on the outside the parties taking place inside and he's not even concerned his city his kingdom it will never fall after all These walls are fortified, they are strong. No one, nothing could topple the mighty, the great Babylon. Massive walls. Some reports are that they were double walls around the city, up to 87 feet wide. They would be able to have chariot races on these walls. They had a fresh supply of water from the Euphrates River that flowed right through the city. They made an allowance in the wall for the river to flow in, allowance for it to fall out uh, or to flow out of the city. There would be fresh fish that they would be able to catch. Plus, they had a stockpile of food that would last anywhere, some would say, from six years to 20 years. They had food stockpiled. They had a water supply. They were set. The the, the, uh, Medes and the Persians could do whatever they want. No one is going to touch us. So the party is going on. They're having the time of their lives. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall at the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now, I mean, that's some description of some fear. I mean, this guy is terrified what he's seen here. The hand, a hand appears out of nowhere and it starts writing a message on the wall. It almost sounds like something out of perhaps a horror uh, film that, that may be shown today. All of a sudden, a hand appears and this writing starts to happen. The king sees this writing and even though he had no idea what it said, it was in Aramaic, he had no clue what it was saying. It sobered him up so quickly. Someone said this was the fastest sober up in human history. He sees the writing on the wall, he sees this going on and his color changes, his limbs get weak, he starts his knees are knocking together. Have you ever been that scared? I mean, this guy was terrified. The king saw this writing and he knew this wasn't good. Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this and shows me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king, uh, to the king the interpretation. I mean, these guys, you think about it, in the book of Daniel so far, what are these guys batting? Like, they're 0 for 3. I mean, they're not doing very good at this, are they? I mean, we, we have this, they get called into the king's court to give an interpretation, and they bomb out. They're not able to do it. It's kind of like modern-day weather people. You know, meteorologists, I mean, you watch the news, you hear it, and, and, and you get this certain report, like, uh-uh, that's not happening. And, 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 you know, yesterday, for example, I was even talking to my neighbor, and they confirmed with me that it was supposed to be cloudy all day. And what was it yesterday? It was sunny, it was beautiful, it was an amazing spring day. Got my wife all spring fevered. We had to go to the greenery and, 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 and buy, you know, some, some plants and get that going. But I did find a nice relaxing chair to drink coffee, uh, get updates on hockey games, and, um, um, yeah, just patiently wait for my wife. I mean, w- w- the meteorologists were wrong then, and, and, and it, you know, it's just like the wise men here. I mean, here they are, supposed to give an interpretation, They're like, uh, we don't know, no clue. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and and his lords were perplexed. So here the king is shaken. Even those that are around there for the party, they're perplexed. They don't know what's going on. The queen. Enter the queen. Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banquet hall. And this is believed to be the queen mother. That's why he said you will be second in the kingdom because there was him, there was his mother, and then you would be third. Whoever would be able to interpret this dream. This would have been uh, more than likely the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. And scholars believe that, that, that this was his wife. And, and we know this because all the other wives and concubines had already been accounted for. And she is now referred to as the queen. And so the queen comes before her son, comes before the king. O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. So this woman has some pull, doesn't she? She comes in here, and she describes Daniel to him, and what what Daniel had done for his grandfather, for King Nebuchadnezzar, a man who is filled with the spirit of the holy God. What a description for Daniel. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. They're useless. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can give me the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Basically, what happened to Daniel all during these years of these other kings, and even now for King Bel, uh, Belshazzar, is he had been sidelined. The new regimes had moved in, and he had been put out to pasture, forgotten, perhaps seen as having no or little value. He had been second in command. Just think of the wisdom, think of the knowledge, just think of, of, of all that, that he was as, as second in command to King Nebuchadnezzar and he's been shelved. And Daniel tells him, hey king, keep your gifts, I don't need them, you're only going to have them for an hour or so. Yet his response to the king is not disrespectful, but he's very direct And before he gives the interpretation, he gives him a little history. He does a little preaching here. He reminds him of what God had done in the life of his grandfather. And he's just reminding him of these truths. Look at in verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he, would, uh, he, whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. And when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he uh, dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from, from him. That's what we were talking about last week. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was like that of a wild donkey's. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house having been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, of wood, of stone, which, is, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in, whom, in whose hand is your breath and whose, who, whose are all your ways you have not honored. like you knew the story of your grandfather you know better than this you heard how it was God who allowed him to rise up as a great king but when he came so became so proud and arrogant after God's continuous warnings in his life it was God who humbled him and made him like a made him like a cow eating grass on all fours and that happened for seven years it was God who allowed that to happen it was God who humbled him Until he turned his face to heaven. And when he turned his face to heaven, everything changed. Folks, that is such a reminder from last week, isn't it? We can go off in areas of sin, of pride, of arrogance. But everything changes when we turn our face to heaven. When we turn our face back to God. In humility, in repentance, acknowledging him as sovereign, as in control. It was God who made him like an ox. And it was God who restored him. And God restored him in an incredible way. You knew this, Belshazzar. You knew this. And yet you wouldn't humble yourself. Verse 24. And then from his pre- presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel parzan. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the writing on the wall was in Aramaic, and and, and basically what it meant was numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Those were the simple words that were up there. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Or mene, mene, tekel, perzen And the word mene means numbered. And it's put there twice. God has numbered the beginning of your days. God has numbered the end of the days. God is the one who's in control of your days. He's, in, he's large and in charge. He's in control of the very breath that we take. Tekel. Meaning you've been weighed or you've been judged by God. And you've been found to be short. It's like an, an ancient scale and, and, and God's requirements are on this side and your life and what you have done are on this side and God's requirements, it means you're way too light. You're way too light. You've come up short. You've been judged and you've come up short. And then Parzen, divided, means divided or halved. Your kingdom will be divided amongst the Medes and the Persians. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom for the next hour. Because verse 30, that very night, the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And secular history tells us That there on October 11th, going into October the 12th, 539 B.C., the Medes and the Persians, they had dammed off the Euphrates River upstream from the city. They diverted the water into a marshland. And it caused the flow of the river to go down so significantly that the army was able to come in from both sides. From the flow side as well as the outflow side, the army was able to come in. And sources said they met no resistance. In fact, some say that there was cheering in the streets. There was no bloodshed except one execution. They hated King Belshazzar. And as I said, some of the ancient writings said there was cheering and celebrations in the streets when the Medes and the Persians came in. That night, Babylon, the kingdom came to an end. Just as Daniel, years and years earlier, had interpreted In Daniel chapter two, that statue, that statue, uh, the dream of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had saying, you, O king, Babylon is the head. And now we see the head has been destroyed. Babylon is done and it's been given over to the Medo-Persian empire. What a sad story. What a sad ending to the Babylonian kingdom. You see, as we look at the word of God and as we look at this passage this morning, there are so many biblical truths and lessons that we can unpack from this. You see, and it's important that we just don't know this as historical fact. We also have to read the word of God and we have to take and and say, how can this, how does this apply to our lives today? How does this apply to what's going on in society today? What does God's word call me to do in light of his word that has been proclaimed here this morning? How do we apply these truths So that it works towards transformation in our lives, and so this morning I want to encourage you to write down a number of things. The writing is on the wall. That can be the banner across. The writing is on the wall. Here are some certainties. Here are some things to pay attention to, and the first one is: this is a good news one. This is something that the that is very clear. The Bible is trustworthy. Believe it. God's word is trustworthy. Folks, we need to believe it. We hold within our hands, when we have the word of God, the most incredible, the most powerful, the most amazing book that has ever been written. 66 books, 40 authors, three continents, three languages over a span of 2,000 years and one unifying message within it. And the beauty, the symmetry, the way that God's word just unfolds and and, and there's such a a unity throughout the word of God is amazing. And yet through the centuries and even to today and until Jesus Christ returns, God's word will always be criticized, will always be be maligned, discredited, laughed at, mocked at. And yet... When a person, when a family, when a church stands on the truth of God's word and stands firm and believes and by faith and sees the reality that God's word is true, it is accurate, it is, it is reliable, that when we take and we believe that, we are in fo- not only just informed, but we have the opportunity to be transformed by the word of God. And here's something amazing. God gave the Prophet Jeremiah details about the fall of Babylon some 50 years before it even happened. Jeremiah the prophet: 50 years, five, zero. That's, a, that's like five decades. That's like half. That's like the age of some people in this room. Fifty years before Jeremiah prophesied. That this would happen. Just just look at some of these prophecies that in in Jeremiah 50, uh, that it would be a northern nation that would conquer the city. In Jeremiah 51, this nation would be associated with the Medes. Jeremiah 27, that this would all happen when Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was in power. Jeremiah 51, that this would happen during a great feast. Again, in Jeremiah 51, that the city's demise, demise would involve the drying up of water. All of it happened pinpoint accuracy and that's God's word here what is written what God is large and in charge he's sovereign he's in control and what was written 50 years earlier came to be just as God said it would and yet it's amazing over the centuries even today how liberal scholars they've been trying to doubt the historicity and the accuracy of God's word especially picking apart this book, the book of Daniel. They've had a field day with it, claiming that it's inaccurate, it's an inaccurate collection, and simply some stories to kind of get across a certain truth. About a hundred years ago at this time, liberal scholars were tossing out the book of Daniel, saying it's not authoritative, it doesn't contain the truth of God's word, it's inaccurate because there was no mention of King Belshazzar in historical records or in artifacts. They couldn't find his name listed anywhere. But because of modern-day archaeology that continues, over the years, over 10,000 artifacts and fragments have been found from this time period of Daniel of the writing of this book and the events of the Babylonian Im- empire at this time. And it's been in the last 50 to 70 years that they have found the name King Belshazzar. It, proving once again the accuracy, the reliability, the trustworthiness of God's word. And the reason why I tell you this that if God's word, folks, is so accurate and so true, And so reliable in the past we have to pay attention to what God's Word says today and about what is yet to still come we need to prepare we need to be ready we need to live our lives according to God's Word it's not a suggestion book it is the book on which we live and build our lives on it's amazing to see God's Word stand so tall and so firm But folks, this means we not only learn from from God's word, we need to pay attention. And these next things that we need to pay attention to, we need to pay attention to. The second thing I encourage you to write down is sin is deadly. Run from it. God's word reminds us over and over again through stories, through commands, through various lessons and parables, that sin brings death. Ezekiel 18, it says, the soul that sins dies. That's pretty, pretty direct. Are you a soul that's, that has sinned? Yes, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And yet sin can be so attractive, it can be so fun. I'm not denying it, sin can be a blast. And by not participating in sin, at times it is going to feel, especially young people, it, at times it's going to feel like you are missing out. The world is having fun. Pursuing this and going after this and, and the parties and the celebrations and it can seem like we're, we're missing out. There can be a lot of pleasure to sin, I won't lie. But sin bites. Sin comes back and it bites and it bites hard. There can be a lot of laughs and a lot of good times, some incredible encounters. It can be such a rush. And it makes one think, oh, I'm really living now. It's really interesting when Charlotte and I were in Vegas, we were walking the strip a little bit and going into some of these different places, and we were there, it was a Friday night, and and uh, I don't know. It, it was just, it was crazy. And, and I was just, it was so surprising in some ways as we were walking as, you know, these, these two sober kind of Christian couple walking in Vegas, you know, and, and, and going through and just seeing all of this and, and just seeing people with their, their drinks and, and they're dressed up and these pe- people are going somewhere. And, and there was a number of times where right in front of us, and be ready for this, I don't want to deafen you, and they're like, Wah! You know, and they're yelling, and they're having the time of their life, and I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, we must be missing out or something because here we are, just oh, you know, and and I mean the party's going on, and and as we were heading back to our hotel, Charlotte said, "You wonder how many suicides there are when people leave Vegas?" And it was in a conversation I've had since that time, and 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 this was I never found the report on this, but the amount of suicides that end up happening within Vegas itself is astronomical. People have gone and they've indulged in an area of sin. You know how the NHL has now a team in Vegas? Why do they have such a good winning record? Because the opposing teams are coming in there and they're living it up and in fact, I know very well that they are, many of these teams are living it up. And there was one coach who, uh, some coaches, I think the Toronto Maple Leaf, for any of you Maple Leaf fans, feel sorry for you, but uh, they're an okay team, I guess, this year. But they still won't win a cup for a long time. But um, their their coach said, they're not on the strip. They're not allowed to be on the strip. They're they're staying clear of that. Another coach uh, for an NHL team, he's like, boys, go and indulge. Go and have fun. Go do what you do in Vegas. And he told The reporters afterwards, after this thing, well, that's kind of different. He says, well, you know what? I feel that guys play a lot harder when they're playing guilty. And I just thought, what kind of stuff was he allowing them just to go and do? They're having a party. They're having a blast. But sin is costly. There's a price to our sin. There's a price to our disobedience. And here, Belshazzar, his thousand lords and concubines and wives and his subjects that are there, they're having the time of their lives. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want it to stay and cost you more than you want it to pay. That's a truth we need to believe and pay attention to. Sin is fun. It can be fun. I won't deny it. But it's only a season and as Ezekiel 18, as God's word reminds us, the soul, that sin die, the soul that sins dies. And in a moment, the king and all the partiers in this story were brought to their senses. And one day, all sinners will be brought to their senses. And for King Belshazzar, the results of his sin, of his immorality, would be deadly. Sin is deadly, folks. Run from it. Don't make an allowance for it. Don't justify it in your lives. The Holy Spirit convicting you. God's word reminding you. A brother or sister pointing something out to you. Run from it. Whether it's an addiction, whether it's anger, whether it's fear. Those are all areas of control that the enemy loves to get into. Areas of pride. Run from it. Thirdly, the past repeats. Learn from it. As George Santayana who said, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And folks, this is so true. Oh, may we, as we study the word of God and as we study history and as we study the lives of others, as we walk with others, may we see so much, and it's so true that that if we do not learn from the history of others, if we don't learn from the history of God's word, we're doomed to repeat it. And we see something so sobering that took place here for the life of of King Belshazzar. In Daniel. In verse 22. Daniel tells the king. After he's walked them through all of this. And he reminds him. Uh, him of the history of his grandfather. And everything that happened to his grandfather. And how God humbled him. And now he says. And now he's humbling you. And he says. And, and now his son Belshazzar. You have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this. He's preaching and he's giving it to him. You have not lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You wanted to pursue, you thought better, you were smarter, faster, stronger. I'm going to do my own thing. I think of when I was a teenager and we would spend our summers and, and uh, spring and fall on a, on a grain farm in Saskatchewan. One spring I was out on the farm with my dad and all of a sudden a neighbor came driving into, the, into our yard so fast. And with that we were also noticing the smell of smoke in the air. And here he had been burning on a field right behind us and, and some of the straw from the previous harvest. And, and here the winds came up and, and they whipped up and they were coming towards our house and he came driving onto our property. And and said, Harold, I need help. There's a fire. And, and, and he says, can your son jump in the truck with me? And, and so I ran and I got what farmers use to put out fires on the prairies, grabbed a grain shovel. This is one of the best tools to be able to fight a fire. And they're accessible on a grain farm. And so I went, I got, jumped into this truck and we went driving out and my dad went and got a tractor with a cultivator on it to start building a firewall to keep our farmyard from burning. And I'm out there and I'm fighting the fire and I'm putting dirt on it and I'm doing whatever I'm doing. And I look over and I see... Our our neighbor I see th- th- this older farmer he's fighting the fire too with a grain shovel shovel but he's on all fours he's on the ground and, and he's fighting it from his knees and I'm like why isn't this guy standing up what's the problem and when we finally got the fire out found out he's missing his leg from right right above his knee and so he was telling us afterwards and he was very thankful that we were able to get the fire out and get it all under control and and, and he told us what happened the fall before. He was, he was out baling some straw, and there was a big clump of straw that wasn't uh, uh, feeding into the baler quite right, and so he got off, in, uh, off the tractor. He kept the power takeoff on, and, and so the baler was still running. He went, and he was just going to kick the straw into the baler. Well, you know how he lost his leg. The bailer grabbed that thing, and I guess he was just holding on to dear life to something while his son finally came to his aid, and they ended up having to amputate his, his, his leg. He said, oh, what a costly, what a dumb accident, what a dumb mistake. It was about seven or eight years later, we read in the Weyburn Review newspaper that his son, in his early 20s, had done exactly the same thing, except he ended up going right through the bailer and passed away. And you think, like, why would you even do that? I mean, there's all the warnings about that. And, 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 and you're playing with someone's life. This is not good. But don't we all do it? I did this past week. Josh, can you come here for a second? I just need help. This past week, I had a block of cheese. Yeah, come on up here, please. Um, I had a block of cheese and um, wanted a piece of cheese. And I was too lazy to get a... Um, Cutting board, if you can just hold that please, you're my, my counter, yeah, be careful. And um, and, and so anyways, I, I'm kinda like, well, I know I'm smart enough because I learned from my parents and from my wife that I should use a cutting board, but I'm like, ah, I don't wanna get a cutting board. I'm just, this is a big block of cheese, I'm just gonna cut some off the top. So I go to the knife block and there's just one knife, all the rest are in the dishwashers, and it didn't get washed, and so I'm like, I'll grab this thing, so just hold it, pretend you're the counter. So, so up a little higher so people can see. So anyways, I'm coming along and I go like this, and I'm like, uh, like, come on, how hard can this be? Is Josh is being a little, yeah, be, be a little, yeah. Anyways, so I go cutting like this and I, I'm thinking, okay, and this is a hard piece of cheese relatively. It's a little soft now, but anyway, I go like this and the knife slips and I, I cut myself on my hand. I'm like, oh, and I look at the skin like, oh, not too bad. You know, I'm like, oh, that was so silly. Why did I do that? And so what do I do again? I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll just do this one. So just hold it there. So I go to do it again and, and right away, I cut it a second time, and like, really? Like, I'm that bad at cutting this? Like, this is, thank you very much, but just good example, you can have some cheese afterwards. Uh, and, And anyways, you do this, and, and I just started laughing and just think, like, how silly of me to do something that I know that is going to get me kind of, you know, going to cause me trouble, and, and when I confess to my wife, she says, why is your hand all cut up, and I told her, and she rolls her eyes, and just like, you know, I thought we taught you better, you know, and, and, and she feels bad as a failure as a wife, because I can't do that quite, you know, anyways, folks, I'm not just talking about cheese and bailers here, though, I'm talking about other serious areas in our lives, that God's word warns us about not just little safety procedures but about issues of life and death we have warnings in God's word about sexual immorality and we know how sexual immorality is running rampant in our society we see how how, how it has affected people marriages families there have been families that you know perhaps even your own that has been affected even perhaps even ruined from sexual immorality and what is sexual immorality I want to tell you what sexual immorality is It's any sort of sexual activity or thoughts outside a committed marriage between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. That's what God's word tells us. Anything else, and and, and yet we know this in the word of God, but we think we're special or God will understand or I've got just passions that are so much and so strong and, you know, and and, and and God understands where we're at, and, and before God, we feel okay about this, and it's not a big deal, and and yet it is a big deal because God's word warns us about it. Men and even women, we hear about pornography, how use of pornography remaps re, re the mind and affects our ability to relate to others. At our Free Indeed conference, Robbie even just gave us some Stunning statistics and different things about involvement in that and how even for young men now are having a difficult time relating to others and especially to women in a proper way because of the mastery and the remapping of the mind that has happened through pornography we read that we know that and yet we think I'm the exception I can get away with it God will understand God will forgive and we don't learn and it ends up biting in the end. Or we isolate ourselves from community, knowing that God's word pushes us towards community. Towards not just showing up on a Sunday, but towards authentic biblical community where iron is sharpening iron, where we're walking with one another. Where, and, and yet we come up with all kinds of reasons and excuses like work or hockey or skiing or I just love my sleep. Or, or it's not really that important. We wouldn't think oftentimes of missing our kids' practices or lessons or games or anything like that. But when it comes to the spiritual instruction of the word of God in community with brothers and sisters in Christ, so many people over the years have departed from the faith after departing from the community of faith. And many of us know stories and can tell stories of people like that, and yet we don't learn and we think we're special and we can do it. Or we read God's word when it comes to money. Where God's word tells us you can't serve God and money, you can't serve two masters, and we think, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna try to prove that one wrong. Ah, Wrong, you can't, unable to. Either you're gonna serve God or you're gonna serve money. Either you're gonna love God or you're gonna love money. You can't serve two, two masters. We become obsessed with bigger barns and upgrades. A heart and a love for God will get replaced by lesser things that happens over and over again. King Belshazzar had a lifetime to learn from the past. He had Daniel. He had godly, a godly man like Daniel in his kingdom. Just a stone's throw away and he didn't learn. And folks, we have to remember that the past repeats itself. We need to learn from it. Oh, may we be people who learn from the past. One of the best ways we can do that is through group time by being in a group together with other believers, sharpening one another, not just learning the word of God, but applying the word of God, sharing where we're at, sharing our struggles, getting real with one another. That takes time. It takes commitment. But pushing towards authenticity, it's so important we have that. Another thing, God wants to use you. Writing is on the wall. You're something clear. God wants to use you, accept you, no matter how old you are. Look at Daniel. He was a teenager in Daniel chapter 1 when he was taken from his homeland. God used him as a teenager, as a young man. He used him as a middle-aged man. He used him as an old man. And we just see how faithful he was to God. And God wants to use you no matter your age, no matter your past, your experience. And even in your older age, God wants to use you and God will bring in the right time, the right opportunity, opportunities for you to be able to be used by God. We need to be ready for that. God wants to use you, Accept it. And fifthly, the last one, and this is something very serious, judgment is coming. Prepare for it. Ping, uh, King Bel, Belshazzar challenged the most high God and he lost. He crossed the line and the party was over. And the kingdom fell. And that became that date in October, 539 B.C., was the day that Babylon fell. The day of reckoning came for him, and God's word reminds us, write down Revelation 18. Go home and read that. Babylon was destroyed once, it will be destroyed again, and and Revelation 18 is very clear. He even uses the word Babylon once again, because Babylon in scripture and in the book of Revelation is used to represent the non-Christian society around us, the wicked and the evil of the world system that is going on around us, the the system that stands up to to, to the ways of God and to the word of God. And in Daniel 5, what we see here is a preview of Revelation 18 of what is yet to come. Prepare for it, judgment is coming. We need to prepare. I love the way John MacArthur, he took a number and listed a number of similarities from Daniel 5 to today in what we're seeing in our society. And we see, folks, we're Babylon 2.0. First of all, what do we see in in Babylon 1.0? We see drunkenness. We see drunkenness today. How much alcohol has to be a part of our society in order to have a good time, in order to survive, in order to cope, in order to celebrate, in order to get through the day or have it at the end of the day? We need our drink. I'm not saying alcohol is wrong to be able to consume it. It's wrong the dependency we've put upon it, the way that we value it, the way that we can be controlled by it, and ultimately to get drunk is wrong and is sin. But our attitude towards it can be very dangerous. And we see this drinking and partying that's going on and, uh, in, in, Nebbe, in Belshazzar's day. And we see that today. Another one is a madness for pleasure. They're having the time of their lives in this party. All kinds of stuff going on. And we see it again today. Just a, we're, we're a pleasure crazed society today. Just out hard after entertainment and pleasure and just good times and having fun. There's nothing wrong with having fun. But to remain biblical and to have good, clean fun, that's a whole other thing. Immorality is another thing that we see then. We see now rampant sexual immorality taking place in our world today. It was happening then. And, and even interestingly enough, some of those artifacts they found from this time period, archaeologists have dug up artifacts with engraved pornographic pictures on it. Back at this time, they had their version of pornography. Today in... Babylon 2.0, we have pornography being a multi-billion dollar industry, ruining lives. Idolatry, then idolatry, now worshiping and pursuing other gods. Blasphemy, taking the temples of God and making a mockery of it. How much is our God? How much is our Lord? How much is our Savior, Jesus Christ, mocked today? All the time. Confidence in human security. No one's ever going to topple us, they thought. And don't we see that today? There's so many other things that we can relate to and see that's happening. And folks, that night there was no battle. There was just an execution. It was too late. And folks, when the Lord returns, our days are numbered. Will we be found faithful or will we be found light? Will we be found unfaithful? As we close this morning, I want to remind us, though, that there's forgiveness and there's healing and there's hope because you're still alive. If you're still sucking air, if this message didn't kill you yet, you're still sucking air, there's opportunity for God to do a work in your heart. We humble humble ourselves before him. There's forgiveness, there's healing, there's hope, there's power, there's salvation that is available today. If you don't know him today, today is the day of salvation. If you've been running away from him, if you, some of these things we've talked about, say, yep, those things are, are, are true in my life, it's the day to repent of those things and to, to start walking anew and afresh. This is cool. And I'm going to close with this. I'm going to ask the band to come at this time. This is not the only time that we see divine handwriting in the Bible. We see it three times. We see it in the book of Exodus, the finger of God writing the law of God for Moses, for the people. Here in Daniel 5, we see the finger writing once again of judgment. In John 8, is the best handwriting you could ever imagine. In John chapter 8, we have Jesus before the religious leaders and a woman, an adulterous, sinful woman deserving death. And they want to stone her and the law of God would state that they would be perfectly fine to do so because she was caught in adultery, a sinful, fallen human being. Her accusers wanted her dead. She went against the law of God. The judgment of the law fell upon her. But what did Jesus do? Jesus extended, he was writing in the sand. We don't know what he wrote in the sand, but he silenced the critics. And folks, there is grace. There is forgiveness and there is mercy. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've been numbered. We've been weighed. And in our sins, we are found wanting. We are found light. But with God, through his son Jesus Christ, even though we've been weighed and measured and we're found lacking, we can't stand before God on our own. But the good news is, is that Jesus left the glory of heaven, came down to this earth, and was crucified for our sin. He became sin so we could become his, have his righteousness, so we could have a relationship with him. And when we run to Christ in repentance, God looks upon us. We're not found lacking anymore. We're found filled to the brim with his grace and his mercy and his goodness. Nothing that we can do except run to him and receive his grace and mercy. May we do that, and may God give us the strength to live out these truths that we've heard today. Let's stand together as we worship and sing this song of worship and celebration of what Christ has done for us.